This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and educational purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Agios. Doctors Amar Zaidi and Mike Callahan are employees of Agios Pharmaceuticals. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? My name is Keith Korneluk, and I'm a producer for Cheat Codes and Bloodstream Media, and I'm sitting in here today for Dr. Z and Dr. C. We've got an exciting show for you today. This is a What Just Happened episode of Cheat Codes with the Sickle Cell Consortium Warrior Convention Part 2. Sharonda Sykes of the Sickle Cell Consortium will provide a recap of several conversations from the convention with guests Dr. Lamitra Scott, Francine Baker, and Dr. Simone Uwan. Let's listen in. Well, hello, ladies. Oh, we are Black Girl Magic today. Yes, I have two doctors and Miss Francine Baker, who's all about the legislative act. So, guys, I need to know, first of all, who you are and what you do. We're going to start first with Dr. Simone. Simone, tell the people who you are and what you do in your space. Okay, so my name is Dr. Simone Yuan. I am a medical doctor with sickle cell disorder, and I am from Orlando, Florida. I am the co-founder and uh, executive director for Sickle Cell Medical Advocacy, and that's probably about all you need to know. I'm sure everything else will unfold as we go. (laughs) And what about you, Dr. Scott? Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Lamitra Scott. I'm a pharmacist, so doctor of pharmacy. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I am the executive director of Breaking the Sickle Cell Cycle Foundation. I am a caregiver also of a nine-year-old son who has sickle cell disease. Thank you. And then I have Miss Francine Baker. Tell us a little bit about you. Hi, everyone. My name is Francine Baker. I am the mother of two sickle cell warriors, young adults, 20 and 21. So I thank God that they made it that far in life. They are successful sickle cell warriors. My 20 year old is a rising junior at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And my 21 year old is a small business owner. Um, Go him. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, he does audio visual. Just put that little plug in there if anybody wants an AV guy. And I, in my space, I'm a sickle cell advocate. You know, I do, like Sharonda said, all things um, legislative and policy. My day job, I am a cancer genetic researcher, but trying to find a way to work my sickle cell research in that. And I will be pursuing a PhD in immunology, in which case that will be all about sickle cells. So I will be joining Dr. Simone and Dr. Scott with that PhD one day. I love it. First of all, shout out to the children that are making it work. Oh my goodness. Congratulations for entrepreneurs in the house. That is so good. That speaks to your brilliance in raising some strong warriors. Now, I want to go to Dr. Simone first because, guys, we just had our ninth annual Warriors Convention. And whoo, was it a lot. But we're going to take it back to last year real quick because you guys were heavily involved in last year's event as well. And so we want to talk to Dr. Simone first about sickle cell symptoms and side effects. Ooh, that was a heavy conversation. That was one of those conversations where people were like, an hour is not enough time. Don't do us like this. (laughs) So I want to talk to you a little bit about that, Dr. Simone. You are really, really heavy and, you know, making sure that people have knowledge with whatever they're doing, whatever you're teaching, you kind of break it down for us like this go round. And I won't say much about it, but this go round, you really broke a lot of stuff down for us at the convention. But last year, I remember you doing the exact same thing and making sure that people understood, you know, sickle cell symptoms and side effects. So can you talk to us just a little bit about what that session was about? Yes. So last year, uh, it was really dynamic only because, you know, sickle cell happens wherever blood flows. Yes. <laughs> so yes. When you say sickle cell symptoms, well, it could be just about anything. And I had people talking about premature ovarian failure and the complications with sickle cell disease, everything to eye problems and retinopathy in sickle cell disease, 
acute chest syndrome and all of the symptoms that those present with that our hematologists still aren't clear about in terms of differentiating pneumonia from acute chest syndrome, which is, you know, essentially a sickle cell crisis in the chest. And, you know, there's so many things because it's where literally wherever blood flows. So, you know, it could be in the lung, it could be in the kidney, it could be in the eyeball, it could be in your skin, like leg ulcers. I mean, it could literally be anywhere. So that was a really dynamic discussion because people came from, I think there were international people on that panel and they, everybody had, you know, some different symptom that they were working through. And so we were able to talk about all of those things. And for me, I'm an educator. So I grew up teaching. When I started college, I became a TA. When I went to medical school, I was a TA. And so (laughs) all through, I just, I just like, you know, I I always tell people, speak to me like I'm a six-year-old because I think anybody, if you break things down enough, they will get it. And I have seen that. Like, and edu- knowledge is power. So when we give people knowledge about their disease, you know, and I tell people I live in this house of sickle cell disease. So I feel it in my body. I interpret it with medical context and then I break it down so that people understand what is going on and how best to fight for themselves. So for that conversations, I know that a lot of people are working through different things. One question I want to ask you about, though, is when we're talking to doctors and we're talking about side effects and things of that nature, how do you feel about because, well, let me let me try to rephrase it. When you're in the hospital, it feels like sometimes the doctors are putting all warriors in one box. And if they're not going through a, B, C, or D, then, oh, this must not be a crisis or this may not be, you know, a part of sickle cell. How do you communicate that to your doctor that, hey, you know, I'm the expert in my body. I know what's going on. And this feels like it's a side effect or something of sickle cell, because it's almost like when you have sickle cell, everything is a side effect or one another from it. And so it's hard to be able to communicate to doctors what you're feeling and how you're feeling it because they tend to put you in a box. And if they haven't seen it a lot, especially those of us that are over the age of 45, it's like, mm, we have different things we need to discuss and talk about here, not just the regular pediatrics or even transition things. And for me, it's like, um, this is a side effect. How do you relay that to your doctors? Well, you have said a mouthful there because... <laughs> You know, it, it it's true. For, okay, so let's let's unpackage that. For one thing, our doctors don't know a whole lot about sickle cell disease. It's amazing, right? So as you know, I teach a class called Medical Advocacy Training, and it's literally having people buddy up and having an advocate virtually escort a patient into the ER and follow them through their hospital visit and then through discharge. And the reason for that is because they're going to meet a lot of different providers from the nurses to the Mm -hmm. ER, to the hospitalist, to the hematologist and any other consult on their case that will say something stupid, will not know about, and, and they're not always being intentionally ignorant about things, Yeah, but they will, you know, they really don't have sickle cell in the United States is not as common, right? And so they don't have a volume of patients that they're seeing every day to kind of see things repeatedly and establish a pattern. There we go. And so oftentimes they will treat the next patient like they saw in the last patient because that's their only context. If they've seen two patients, then that's their context. If they've seen one patient, that's their context. And if they haven't seen any patients, the book is their context. They're literally going from the textbook. And we all know that with sickle cell disease, Sickle cell disease did not write the book. People did. Sickle cell disease says, okay, feel free to write whatever you want. I'm do whatever I want. And it just goes on its own way. And so I think a lot of what I've been teaching people, I, I empower the patients to download information. So guidelines and things like that. So that when they walk in, because that's the language that the doctor speaks. 
So when they walk in, if they're thinking, oh, I have a cute chest, okay, you, you know, have a little stack of what presentation a cute chest shows up with, right? A cute chest is a sickle cell crisis in the chest, along with respiratory symptoms, hypoxia, and elevated temperatures, not necessarily all present at the time because it's like a continuation, right? It's a continuum. So you might present early and not have all those symptoms, but it's teaching people to teach the doctors because the doctors don't know. The doctors may not all have context. Now, there are places, pockets in the country where you'll see people or doctors, providers who've seen a lot of sickle cell patients, right? And you breathe a sigh of relief because they're like gems, right? They are able to work with us and listen to us and recognize the individuality of sickle cell disease and know that it's going to occur differently in every every person presenting before them. Just like leukemia can be very different in different people, right? Just because it's a white blood cell disorder doesn't mean it's going to present. There are so many types of leukemia, just like there's so many types of sickle cell disease. They yeah. just haven't figured that out yet, right? And so we're having to inform our providers. And the best way I know how, as of now, is to give people literature, information, and they know what they're feeling, if they can best correlate it with what we can find. And I'm not talking about just the textbooks, but about best practices by our leading sickle cell experts in the country that are writing on this stuff and actually publishing things that we actually think are in line with what we feel, then we can package that and pass it on to them. I love that. Yeah, see, this is why I love you. You break things down. <laughs> Did you want to say anything, Dr. Scott? Because you are a pharmacist, and so you see a lot of warriors come in, and you do a lot of alternative medications and ways that we can help with side effects mostly and you know, just sickle cell on a day-to-day basis. Well, first and foremost, I want to piggyback off of what Dr. Yuan said in regards to having those treatment guidelines. When you go to your physician, the language that they understand, or when you go to the nurse, the language that they all understand is what has been published for treatment guidelines. That goes the same way in terms of when you look at pharmaceutical treatments or when you look at alternatives, because a lot of people don't buy into the pharmaceuticals that are available for sickle cell disease. So they want to look at more natural therapies. Either way it goes. If you have some literature to back up what it is that you're looking at for your said treatment, that really goes a long way. It actually begins to open the door with your healthcare provider. So therefore, they are on the same page with you in terms of what it is that's going to work best for you. Oftentimes, that question comes about is what's the best medicine to take for whatever it is, whether it be sickle cell disease or anything. The best medicine to take is the one that the patient will take. Because patients can be prescribed a multitude of medicines that have all of this literature behind why they are so good. But if patients won't take them, let's say because the taste is so bad, it makes them want to throw up or the pills are too big because they feel like when they get ready to swallow, they're going to choke. If they're not taking them, then that's not the best medicine for that particular person. So that's where I will piggyback off of what Dr. Yuan said in terms of making sure that whatever you're are going to take that you are utilizing stuff that is evidence-based medicine, what we refer to it as in the, the healthcare sector is make sure that, you know, you've got evidence-based medicine on board and that's where you can begin that conversation. Even if it's with natural therapies, your provider needs to know that because if you're doing natural things and they're prescribing you prescriptive meds that you aren't really taking, then at the end of the day, that's not going to give you the benefits that you want in terms of controlling your sickle cell disease. That's true. I've never thought about it like that. Wow. And Francine, for you, because you have two children with sickle cell, I'm sure that the way they interact or the different side effects of different pain crises are different for both of them. They're not the same. Is that true or am I... No, that is absolutely 100% true. And I love what Dr. Scott said about the best medicine is the one that the patient is going to take because (laughs) I can spend spend hours on that topic by itself. 
But no, my two warriors are completely different. Never mind the fact that one's a boy and one's a girl. And we all know that male folks just don't handle pain <laughs> the same way that female folk handle pain. We won't talk about that. But <laughs> they're from they were little, um, their crises presented themselves differently. My son has had acute chest several times. He's been in the ICU more times than I would like. Came near death twice. My daughter has never had acute chest, but she's had several silent strokes. My son has never had silent strokes. Mm. He has more, he, he presented with chronic pain sooner than my daughter presented with chronic pain. And he has more systemic pain. My daughter has more localized pain. So completely different. He can take his pain medicine, pop him like candy, and be good to go. My daughter, she's like, no, nah, I'm not about that life. <laughs> she wants to be able to focus. She wants to be able to yeah. think and do and move and take her classes and, and go to her clubs, school clubs, not boogity-boogity clubs. Not the boogity-boogity. No, Miss Gracie. Not the boogity-boogity clubs. She might want to do that too, but she just wants to be able to live her life without the effects that the narcotics might cause and prevent because yeah. she doesn't do well, even on the low dose, she doesn't do so well with that. And then the problem is she takes it and she still feels pain. So it's not even like she takes it and she takes it the way she's supposed to take it and she feels better. No, the pain's still there. Now she feels worse and she can't even be productive, right? Yeah. And so this has been a battle where recently she and her hematologist has come to a gridlock because her hematologist is telling her she's not taking her pain medicine like she's supposed to take her medicine, which is why she's in pain. And she's trying to explain to her, her hematologist that no, my pain medicine's not working and it's preventing me from living my life. And I don't want to take my medicine if it's not going to work and prevent me from living my life. And so this is where we are in terms of trying to advocate and fight for better treatment options. So it's not just about, yeah, we need to find a cure. We also need to find better treatment options because between here and a cure, there is living with sickle cell, right? Ooh, you said and, mouthfeel. And if, we're, if we have people that are living with it, and even people who may decide that they don't want the cure, what are we doing for the in-between? What are we doing for the living with and improving treatment options for individuals that what they're doing right now is not working? Like my daughter who wants to live her life and not be encumbered by pain medicine or the side effects of the pain medication that is not working and that's not allowing her to live her life. And from an advocacy perspective, I'm glad to see that, you know, there are more bills that are being introduced that are allowing us to address this issue and that, you know, we have policymakers that are actually making this a priority, right? We have people that are looking and saying, oh, you know what, maybe we should consider increasing the workforce so that we can have more adult hematologists. And maybe we should consider putting resources into transition care so that our young adults can actually have a good quality of life and have yeah. the option to do more with their lives instead yeah. of just sit down and wait for this very, very horrible degenerative disease to kind of, you know, take whatever good life they might have from them, right? And so this is something that I have made, this, this is kind of what got me started. I wanted to make sure that my children would be able to know that they're more than what their diagnosis is and that they would be knowledgeable so that they themselves can fight for a better quality of life. And for that reason, I'm very, very grateful that I have a supportive community within the sickle cell community. Now what I want, <laughs> <laughs> I want for that support to be outside of the sickle cell community yes. so that we have that buy-in and so that we can see progress faster than what we're seeing now. I agree. Yes. 
Now, I want to go into, because you, you just made some really, really good points. Hey, Sharonda, yes. before we segue and jump off of this, I want to piggyback off of what, or explore what Francine said a little bit more, because we're talking about treatment and how she was saying how her daughter was being prescribed pain medications, but she wasn't taking it because the pain medication really didn't work. And it was giving her, you know, more side effects that prevented her from, you know, having the quality of life that she deserved. Back to those treatment guidelines and healthcare professionals actually understanding the pathophysiology that goes along with sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is more than just chronic pain. Mm. There is a neuropathic component, meaning that there is some nerve stimulation that's going on because of the stressors that are created by a sickle cell crisis itself, which activates that sympathetic nervous system. So basically your fight or flight system. So in that case, narcotics don't treat that kind of pain. Mm. Narcotics don't treat pain that is caused by a nerve issue or a nerve stimulation issue. And in actuality, narcotics can actually make it worse. So that's what I want people to understand when it comes down to treating sickle cell disease. And when you talk about having available treatments that are out there, there are options that can be used in combination or either at, you know, targeting a different aspect of what's causing that pain. When people don't fully understand the underlying cause of your pain and just assume, well, it's sickle cell disease, let's give them some opioids and send them on their way. That person is not doing the due diligence for the treatment of a sickle cell patient before them. So I, I just wanted to make sure that I highlighted that for anyone that is out there listening, if you have a sickle cell patient and you think that using opioids is the end-all be-all to control their pain, that's not it. And you're actually doing that person a disservice because they may be taking these medications and succumbing to the side effects and not being able to live or have that quality of life that they want. Mm, yeah, actually, you, I drop. am going to jump on Dr. Scott and uh, Francine because they are both like saying something that just needs to be emphasized. It is so true. Like there is this assumption that everything will be cured mm -hmm. by an opiate. And I am so saddened yep. to hear that Francine's daughter has, you know, been given one treatment and it's not working. And she's saying to her doctor that it's not working. And all the doctor is saying is, well, you're not using it right. No, she, right. she, why not explore something else? Like I tell people and exactly what Dr. Scott said, there are other types of like, what about anti-inflammatories? There are, there's, we have a multi-systemic inflammatory disorder, sickle cell disease. And when we are in an acute crisis, there's just a flood of inflammation that's happening, right? And then, of course, you get nerve damage. So now you have to have neuropath. You can have neuropathic pain. So now you have you need nerve pain medications. And I tell people, even when I call the doctors, I say, look, cover the three bases: nociceptive pain. Yes, that's that's the the damage, injury, pain. That's going to be taken care of by the opiates. But what about the inflammatory pain? You can up the opiates all you want, the inflammatory pain is still going to be there and people are going to be thinking, oh, the medicine isn't working. Well, you have the wrong key in the lock. So <laughs> oh, of course good. it's not working. So if we can put some Tordol or some other anti-inflammatory on board, then you see the patient say, oh, I feel better. They have no idea. They Some of them think the Tordol is an opiate. It's actually an anti-inflammatory. But they'll say, oh, well, it helped me. That one helped me not realizing, well, you actually have more inflammatory pain and that's what's going on. Some people have nerve pain and I'm like, okay, put them on gabapentin, give them a lidocaine patch, do something that will address that kind of pain. Otherwise, wrong key in the lock and you can up the opiates all you want. It is not going to address that pain. So I completely echo both what Francine and Dr. Scott said, there are other options besides opiates. And when we walk in, we, we really need the doctors to know that all three of those need to be on board before they even raise the opiates, because it's very likely that the patient is having other types of pain. It's mm -hmm. not just 
multimodal pain. It's not just one type of pain. And so they need to act in that way so that they can address all of them and then see where the patient sits before just raising the opiates up and up. I mean, you guys went right into it. That's what Dr. Scott, you were saying, let me talk about it. But that's what I wanted you to talk about. I was going to say, Dr. Scott, you're up because now we're talking about sickle cell holistic health and nutrition. Like, so we're talking about, you know, going back to Francine's daughter. You know, what are those other things that people can do? What is the alternative medicines that we can do besides opioids? Um, and narcotics, like what, what does that look like? So you actually had a session last year about, you know, sickle cell, holistic health and nutrition. And we talked about it a lot this year because that was one of the classes that people kept talking about. And again, like on Dr. Uwan's session, they were like, wait, we need more time because everybody's body is different. How do we take back our health? How do we make sure that we're not just taking medicines all the time and not being coherent and always in the bed, what what can we do outside of that so that we can live lives that are full and as great as we are? And so I just you go back to that and let's talk about that. Let's explore that conversation. Well, you know how the people say that you are what you eat mm-hmm. and a lot of what we put into our bodies actually can either make sickle cell disease worse or it can make sickle cell disease better. Because sickle cell disease is something that is you know, people are born with it. So that means whatever habits you develop throughout your childhood, those are typically the habits that you carry into your adult life. But then when you find out during your adult life that the things that you have been eating may not have been so great for your sickle cell disease, it's kind of hard to flip that switch to go to a more natural, holistic way of eating and making sure you get all your your greens and beans and, and proteins in But that's basically fundamentally where it begins when it comes to what can we do for our sickle cell disease and manage it outside of taking medications. You want to make sure that you put things in your body that decrease inflammation. Dr. Yuan just said that, you know, sickle cell disease is associated with a chronic inflammatory process all the time. That's always what's going on for a lot of patients. So you want to make sure that you stay away from things that contribute to creating inflammation in the body. So that boils down to red meats, processed foods, chemicals, a lot of preservatives. You want to stay as whole as you can. You want your your food to go, like they say, from farm to table with eliminating the middleman and all the people that need to touch it in the middle. Every time someone touches it in the middle, they're more than likely adding something to it that does not need to be there and is not beneficial for your sickle cell disease. When it comes down to your vitamins and supplements, I know people think that, you know, taking all these pills, it's it's not good for me, or I don't want to take all these pills. There's a high pill burden. But when you look at sickle cell disease, the body is constantly trying to make red blood cells. And if you don't have the sources or the nutrients that you need from eating a wholesome diet to provide the body with the building blocks that it needs to replace those red blood cells, you have to get it from somewhere. And in sickle cell disease, because those processes are taking place so quickly, so rapidly, you will more than likely benefit from having vitamins and supplements on board. When you think about vitamins, you want to think about those things. One, uh, we know that have evidence behind that they do work in terms of looking at vitamin D. We know that people who have low vitamin D levels have higher rates of inflammation. They have higher episodes or number of pain crisis. So you want to make sure your diet is rich in vitamin D. When we talk about decreasing inflammation as far as supplements go, a lot of people look at turmeric. Turmeric is something that we do know is a supplement and it also helps to decrease inflammation in the body. When we look at some of the newer medications that are on the market for sickle cell disease, we have Indari, which is L-glutamine. L-glutamine is necessary for almost all metabolic processes that take place in the body. And specifically, its role in sickle cell disease is it, it acts as what we call an antioxidant. That means that it stabilizes your cells so that they don't break as easily, so that they aren't as fragile, therefore helping to decrease inflammation from the things that waste out or spill out when those red blood cells break. So that's just an example of when we look at our, oh, I forgot about exercise. Yeah. Sickle cell patients can exercise. 
Exercise is actually helpful in sickle cell disease because the more you sit around and not do anything, that actually creates a place of the body being stagnant and you start to get stiff and, you know, it's hard to move around. So incorporating light exercise and, you know, a good wholesome base fruit and vegetable high protein diet which is devoid or as much as you can, inflammatory products, chemicals, processed foods, and sugar. I forgot about that one. Sugar, that's the main one. And I know it's it's in every Sugar is the um, devil. And that's the sad part because with a lot of children, sugar is in almost everything mm-hmm. that is targeted towards kids. So now you've got children with this chronic illness that is, you know, exacerbated with inflammation and you want to feed them or, you know, what's marketed towards kids. Mm-hmm. It's not the wholesome things. It's the things that gives them that sugar rush that also causes their sickle cell to be, you know, off the charts. So that those are just a few examples of, you know, things that you can do from a vitamin supplement standpoint to help manage your sickle cell disease, to decrease the inflammation that can come along with it. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. Now, you have a little warrior, too, because, of course, you're a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Now, did you start that off when he was small or is this like you had to learn it along the way and then the change happened or how did you do it? I learned it along the way. For me, sickle cell disease was very new to my family because none of my family members had sickle cell disease. Nobody it just caught us blindsided just off the bat. In addition to the fact that he was misdiagnosed by our pediatrician, because again, all healthcare providers are not knowledgeable about sickle cell disease. So for me, it was kind of like, voila, now you've got a new baby with sickle cell disease, figure it out. So in that spot is where I began to do research on exactly what sickle cell disease was, what options are available for treatment. And then over the years, I started out with getting into the natural space with trying to find alternative pain management methods outside of using narcotics. Because mm-hmm. again, I, me being a pharmacist, I know how impactful opioids can be on a person's life, body, and overall outlook. With him being so young, I did not want that to be the story that he would be associated you know, with sickle cell pain. Every time something hurts, I take a pill. I didn't want that for him. So we started with essential oil therapy. And I started doing research in essential oils to find out what types of oils can help with managing pain. So that's where it began. And once I found out about different plants and plant properties that are helpful in mitigating pain, that is where I began my journey and looking into, okay, so what else is, what's next in terms of the vitamin supplement world? Because I was already in the plant world. Yeah. And that's kind of how it evolved. And like I said, it's a lot of vitamins to take, but if you can find a product that has the majority of what you're looking for, just starting to read labels, that will help you tremendously. Another way to get the vitamins and supplements in is through making shakes. A lot of that is a way you can just throw all of them in and blend it up. And now you've got a a shake or a smoothie, something that's nutritional for you in more ways than one. So to answer your question, it was a process that I learned along the way. And as I learned that information, I began to share it with other members of the sickle cell community that I knew could benefit from having an option. While natural therapies and supplements, it's all very variable and it does take time. It's not, it doesn't work like an opioid where you take it now and in 15 minutes, voila, you know, you're better. Yeah. It's something that has to become part of your life. life. Yep. Yeah. It's a lifestyle change. 
So that's what I tell a lot of people. You know, you have to work with it, find what works with you. And then when you find something that gives you the benefits that you're looking for, then you stick with it. And then as you do that, it does become a part of your life. I love that. I absolutely love that. Did you have something to say on that, Dr. Simone? No, I'm just listening and eating it up because I I completely agree. I think the other thing I was thinking as you were talking, Dr. Scott, is that a lot of times people just don't know how to make it taste good. And so then they, you know, avoid everything. And there are some really great, you know, even sugar alternatives. I I completely agree. You could tell people I said it, sugar is the devil. (laughs) And I really think that people need to actually take on the eating habits of the diabetic. Because if you think about it, it's our red blood cells, right? So with diabetics, what what makes them have like gangrene of the legs and all this stuff? It's lack of circulation because their red blood cells become glycosylated, which is the sugar on the membrane. That's how it travels. And then it gets sticky and they stick on each other and they cause scarring in the vessels and it blocks off circulation. And then they have you know, gangrene and they have problems with neuropathy and they have all these things, right? Well, our blood cells, when we sickle, it's already sticky. Mm -hmm. It polymerizes and changes characteristics and it becomes sticky and stick to the endothelium, stick to each other and cause blockage of circulation. Now you add sugar to that. Right. It's not going to say, oh, you have sickle cell and your red blood cells are already sticky. So I'm going to bypass you. No, (laughs) no. It's going to hop on for the ride. And so I feel like it's a missed opportunity to have nutrition consult when a patient is in the hospital, but it's because there's lack of information. So they, because they don't, you know, when a diabetic goes in, they get all kinds of teaching and education. They come to the home, they do teaching and education. They don't do that. Right. And yet food is powerful. Food changes the way our body reacts to in a sickle cell crisis. It can be pro-inflammatory and cause a sickle cell crisis. And people need to know that. People need to have that diabetic education, which is why a part of what my program is doing is we created a program called Patient Education for Prevention or PEP. And a part of that is nutrition and it's individualized because people really need to get counseling just like the diabetics counseling so that they can eat right and avoid the pitfalls because they're not doing it on purpose. They just don't know. And then make it fun. Like, you know, I put monk fruit in my smoothies. It's a sweetener. I use stevia honey. I don't use a whole lot of honey. I just don't like the way it makes me feel, but it's good for you. So I put it in, but you know, (laughs) I put in a whole lot of stuff. I really don't like including a whole lot of vegetables in there, (laughs) pile it on in. Yeah. And then I put it, put something over it, you know, put it in monk fruit, put it and then I slurp it down and I'm good to go. You know, and then I'm 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 gonna be good, right? And I know I'm gonna be good. And and so I think it's just giving people those kind of options too. Yeah. That's good though. So I'm and I'm gonna segue over to this part then because you're right, Dr. Simone. They do when you're in the hospital for other things, they do send nutritionists by, they send all of these different people by to get education. So that leads me to you, Francine, which we're talking about legislative. Like how do we get this in the hospitals? Like how do we ensure that warriors will get that same type of education talking about nutrition? And and when you were talking about Dr. Simone, that, you know, eating certain foods will help with your crisis or help with just your energy and help with different things. How do we get that as something that we put in as a part of the treatment? You know, we're already trying to get access to care and then we're trying to get so many different things but I think that is important too though that w- especially when we start transitioning our younger kids and they're now taking care of their own health and Absolutely. especially if they're in college and you're eating weird because you're trying to study yes so oh my goodness I think that would be so brilliant for us to try to get this as a part of the protocol that's what I'm trying to think about the protocol would be that please send over you know somebody from nutrition don't send them home just with medication but nutrition options and you know things you could do oh my 
gosh, I just got excited about that. You know I got to tell Dr. Baylor about this one. Okay, go ahead, Francie. I'm sorry. I just got overjoyed about that because I think you're right, Dr. Simone. I really do. Okay, go ahead, Francie. Listen, this story of my life, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it back even further. This is something that should be a part of the education that parents get when they receive that phone call, your child has sickle cell disease. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, Francine. Yes. Dr. Scott mentioned it. She got the diagnosis when she finally got the right diagnosis. And then it was just like, you go ahead and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's about the same thing here too. Wow. You get that call and then you're like, so what am I supposed to do now with that information? Yeah. Nobody tells you what to expect. No one tells you what you need to do, what you need to know, how you should do X, Y, Z, A, B. No, there's none of that. So one of the things that we're doing here in Maryland with the Department of Health is we're trying to actually create resources that we can put in schools so that we can have our students take the information home to their parents Mm. and so that the students can educate their parents and then the parents now will have the information that they can take to their physicians. But, you know, it's really important that we start educating our community, even from the youngest ones. And, you know, that has been my philosophy. That has been my model. If I educate my children. My children are going to have the knowledge that they need so that they too can educate their peers. They can educate their teachers. They could educate their doctors if they need to educate their doctors. And they too can be a part of the solution instead of relying on somebody else to be a part of the solution. So that's one way that we get something like this into a bill. The other thing that I would say is that we recognize that this is important to our community. Nutrition is important to our community. Let's write the daggone bill. Yes. Let's write it. Let's write it up. (laughs) Okay. Let's find, you know, members of our Congress House of Representatives that we already have in our corner to take this and say, yeah, this sounds good. I'm on board with this because at the end of the day, if we are healthy through our diet and we're not going into the hospital, then we're saving money. We're saving the insurance money. We're saving the state money. We're saving ourselves money. Right? money yes. <laughs> and wherever we can save money, like if we can <laughs> save money, people want us to save money, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's the other thing. We have the ability within ourselves to make that change. And I've stressed to my children, I've stressed to others that we are our biggest advocates. If we ain't going to advocate our, for ourselves, then we can't expect other people to advocate for ourselves. Our tagline is nothing for us without us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Dr. Bailey always says that's within our community. There are professionals and experts of all kinds. Yeah. So we have the power. We have the capabilities to write our own legislation, our own bills that we can now have introduced into the house, into the Senate, wherever it is that we need to get things introduced into. So I say, let's go ahead. Let's write it. We see this as a priority. We see where other populations with, you know, diseases, cancer, especially where they have these resources available to them. And we see through the literature, through research, where it is beneficial, it's useful, it works. When you have a nutritional plan that helps to mitigate some of the effects of your diagnosis, whether it's the treatment or just what the diagnosis does to your health itself, people do better. And so since we have this knowledge and we have the abilities within ourselves to write up a bill, let's go ahead and do it. Then once we do that, we do what we do best. We make some noise. Yes, I like it. (laughs) Because if there's anything this community can do, 
is we know how to make noise, right? Yeah. We know how to get on the phone. We know how to get up there on the hill. We know how to, whether it's, whether it's here in DC or whether it's our local capitals in our various different states, we know how to make noise. So that's what we do. We go and we make noise and we make noise until they listen. And we keep making noise until we get what we want. And that's how we get it. But there's another component that I feel we often miss. And once things are passed, they're not always executed, right? Mm, okay. And I feel that as a community, we need to do a better job of making sure that once bills are passed, that they're properly executed in a way that's going to benefit us. It's great that we have so many bills passed, especially as of late. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now we need these things put in motion. We need to actually see the benefits, the fruits of our labor, so to speak. Yeah. Right? So now we need to start thinking about how are we going to push these bills forward so that we within the community, our warriors could actually benefit our providers who now we have resources to help our providers to provide the care to our, especially to our young adults, they can provide that care. Now we need to make that happen so that we can have the the improvement that we want to see within our community. That's where we need to work on improving. The follow through, the follow through. Oh yeah, that's it right there, Dr. Simone, the follow through. Yeah. I think that it would be good to have an oversight committee when the bill is written, that an oversight committee, which is inclusive of someone from the sickle cell community to be a part of that committee. And I say that because in the state of Tennessee, we got a bill passed and it was called Terrence's Law last year. And what that law did was that it required our or state Medicaid programs to have sickle cell disease specific utilization management in regards to healthcare resource utilization and pharmacy benefit utilization. In addition, and like you said, Francine, creating that bill wasn't enough because I was invited to do a review on the bill and what I thought it meant to the sickle cell community. And what I saw was, yeah, it looks good on paper, but the things that were being looked at, it was given a real cursory overview. And I felt like it needed to have a detailed person going in to point out, okay, so you say you have access to all of these new medications for people who are on state Medicaid, you have access to them. But when I went and looked at the actual formulary, no, they didn't. The only medicine that was on there approved with no red tape involved was hydroxyurea. Anything else, there was tons of red tape associated with it. So on the outside, it looks like because this is what the state Medicaid plan said that they were going to do, that they have opened up access. But until you get somebody who's on the inside who really knows what that means for a sickle cell patient, then I feel like the bill is what it is. It's just something on a piece of paper that they can say that, yeah, we did it. But if nobody's holding them accountable for it, then it really won't have the impact that we want it to have in the community. Yes. Yes. Oh, I agree. Definitely. I agree. So basically what we're we're basically saying is that once these bills are written, we need to have somebody in the community that's going to look with this fine teeth comb and they're going through it and making sure, like Dr. Owen said, the follow through is the thing that's happening and then the execution. I like that. I like that. Wow. Okay. Okay, so Francine, when we um give you a call and be like, yo, we trying to write this bill and uh, <laughs> this is what's happening. It's about calling. Don't play games. You know we will. I wow, know we will. y'all. Right, Dr. Simone Tellers, we'll call you in, in a heartbeat. It, it's a whole thing. Listen, <laughs> I'm over here make, I'm over here typing up notes, so you know, call me. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Okay. We heard her. We all heard her say it. So when we start calling. It's, yeah, recorded. We it's recorded now too, right? <laughs> it is recorded. I have a recording. No, but you ladies are so awesome. Like I said at the beginning, this is Brett Girl Magic. Y'all are really doing some great things in the community, um, which is why we keep calling on y'all for the conventions and things. But we are officially out of time and so this has been a great conversation. I would really like to continue, especially the legislative conversation and the nutrition conversation, because this is something I think the community really, really needs to 
chime in on and tell their side of different things because with the nutrition, like Dr. Scott said, it's hard. You got to turn that switch off. What you don't know is what you don't know. And though you may come to a conference and, you know, somebody may say it on a platform, but if you don't have that literature or a place where they can go and remind themselves, oh, wait, they said that A, B, C, and D, you know, and listening to recordings or watching it over and over again, we are living in a place and a time where you have to give people bite-sized things or they are not going to pay attention to it. It's just a whole thing. And so I really want to make a commitment to make sure that we have this information for the community, especially these bills, because there's a lot of people now that want to know about legislative things. They want to know what yes. bills are out there, you know, what have already been written, what has already been done. And there's not one central place where we can go just for sickle cell, not that I know of. And so that's something that I think we can definitely get on board with and have something on, especially the consortium's website, somewhere we can just click and see all of the bills that are going on, this is what we need to do. And again, I'm, I'm going back to you, Dr. Simone, the follow-up. I think the follow-up and that execution is going to be super important because I didn't realize, you know, just what Dr. Scott said, those bills look good on paper, but what happens after that? What are we doing? Yeah, I was shocked when she said that, actually, because I, I remember hearing that they had extended access for the primary care physician to prescribe, you know, Endari and uh, Adapve and Oxbrida. And I thought, oh, that's incredible. That's yeah. great. And then, you know, she's talking about all the red tape she's seeing on the back end. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my gosh, that's 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 terrible. Listen, the red tape. Yeah, a lot of our patients may not even know what a PA is. And sometimes those newer medications, they will require you to either try and fail the, the gold standard, which is hydroxyurea, or mm-hmm. they will require you to have a prior authorization. Well, you know how busy the doctor's office can be. What's the yeah. likelihood of you actually getting your doctor to, or someone in his office, to go to the website, print out the PA, complete the form, turn it in? It's a lot of red tape that's required. And I feel like if you're going to say that you're helping the sickle cell community and you're opening up that access, then access should really be open and not, you know, partially or superficially open. Yeah. And then when you're dealing with the young adults who are transitioning, that stress, that adds to their crises because my son, he's taken on that whole responsibility on his own. My daughter, she's more like, okay, could you help me with this? But he's like over here, stressing because he just can't get his medication and it's because of the prior authorization. Wow. And that, like, if they only understood that they're not helping, they're actually hurting. Because when when you make it so difficult for them to access the medication that they need so that they can take care of their health, and this is just maintenance, then you're, you're actually the ER. not helping. Yeah. They end up in the ER and that's even more expensive. They're creating more costs by doing what you just said. Yeah. And that information that you shared during the ninth annual Warriors Convention yeah. <laughs> about <laughs> the insurance company to challenge, challenge is not the right word, but to challenge the discharge. Like if you feel that you're not yes. ready, yes. that was golden information, Dr. Yuan. That was golden. I texted my children right away when you said that so that they know (laughs) next time you feel that you are not ready, call your insurance company, fight it. Tell them you're not ready to go yet. You'll get at least 24 hours. (laughs) Yes. In the case of Medicare, it's 72 hours. And even if you lose, then you're not asked to pay for those three days. They just say, okay, well, you have to go home now. But three days is enough time for you to actually bounce back a little more than you were three days ago. So, yeah. Yeah. Good information. This is why I like the information we share during the conventions. Because it's really geared towards the patient in the everyday life and those things that people are not talking about at different conferences. Because at the end of the day, the warriors really still need the this information, especially, like you said, for those transitions. The kids, these college kids, especially because there are some college kids that did not know that they can go and 
requests, you know, access to different things or requests, you know, um, extra time for different things, but they, they don't know that. And when you, when you're transitioning and you're in college, you want to be like everybody else. And so you don't, and until you're getting behind or until you keep practicing and then have to miss classes. And then it's like, let me find out what I need to know. But if we give them that information up front, it knowledge is power. Like Dr. Um, Simone said. Yeah. So, yes, you know, I can go on and on because we got some good conversations here, but we are out of time. So I want to just get one last thing from each of you ladies that you would want to say to the community just about whether you're talking about nutrition, legislative or symptoms and side effects of sickle cell. Just give me one last thing that you would like to say to the community. We'll start with you, Dr. Simone. Okay. well, I would say this. Don't just survive, thrive, and do your best to live in that space because you are worth it. When it comes to the symptoms, you look at, you know, you read, reading, empowering yourself and finding out what are natural. I I always start with natural. I grew up in South America. That's my backyard. The, the, The backyard was the pharmacy. So finding out what you can do to treat those symptoms naturally And there's nothing better than talking to your community because it's very likely that somebody's been through it. So don't be afraid to ask. I love it. I like the pharmacies in your backyard. Ooh, yes. Okay, what about you, um, Dr. Scott? I would say that people should be your own health advocate because your voice matters. Remember that you are a member of the healthcare team. It's not the healthcare team always telling you what's best for you, what you need to do. You have a voice. You are a member of the team and the team is only as strong as its weakest link. So if that weakest link is you because you're not speaking up about your own health, change that. Play your role. Yes, I'm over here snapping. I love it. I, I ain't love got it. nothing. You know I'm gonna have to tweet that one. That one was I ain't good. Got I got nothing. Yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> Wait, play play role. Your role. Kevin, make that one last. I'm gonna go, but you have to make Doctor Scott's one last. <laughs> oh my goodness! I agree. Yeah, I that agree. One is, that's the that's the drop the mic moment. That's the yeah. That's the drop the mic one. Yes. I don't even know what to say after that. Like yes. <laughs> Well, it comes from the fact that I talk to a lot of people from a pharmacy standpoint. And when you ask people why they take a certain medicine, they're like, I don't know. The doctor told me it's not the doctor's health. It's your health. It's your responsibility. Stop passing the buck on your business. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) I mean, I feel like there should be a gavel right here. Like, just bang on the goodness. (laughs) Okay, Francine. Now I gotta pull it together and think. (laughs) I don't even know what to say after that. Okay, all right, all right. Um, What I was gonna say was (laughs) no, um, no. In all due seriousness, though, I just want to speak to the warriors. You are your biggest advocate. Sickle cell does not have you. You are stronger than your diagnosis. You are more than your diagnosis. And to the the caregivers, you are everything. Even when it seems like you're not or you can't, you're everything. And you mean so much to the warrior in your life. So keep doing the thing that it is that you are doing. Fight for the people that you love. It means more than you know. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I will say just a final wrap up and round up. Each one of our events, each one of our conferences, our conversations um, have always, always centered around there is nothing for us without us. That is our unofficial slogan for the Sickle Cell Consortium. And I want to thank all of you ladies because you are in this space. And because of you, we can host events like we have for the eighth annual, ninth annual. And we're able to call upon you to speak and teach and talk to warriors and have tough 
conversations with them. And it has been such, such a help. We've got many messages in emails about how great the information is. And it's all because of people like you. So thank you to you caregivers. Thank you to warriors and doctors and those that really champion and really care about this community. So we, I say thank you to you ladies, but to all the warriors out there, I echo everything these women have said. You are your own warrior. Please make sure that your voice is heard whichever way that you can, whether it's through creative, whether it's through speaking up to your doctor, speaking up to your parents if you're you know, younger than um, the transition age. Whatever you have to do to get your voice heard, do that. So thank you, everyone, for joining us on this conversation for this part of the podcast. We really appreciate you, and we will see you in the next one. Well, Warriors, I'll tell you what, I miss Dr. Z and Dr. C. But don't worry, because they have some exciting episodes planned for you starting next month, so they will be back. But until then, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Like, subscribe, and leave us a rating. Once again, thanks to Sharonda Sykes for guest hosting this episode of Cheat Codes. And don't forget, you can also follow Dr. Amar Zaidi at Dr. Z Sicklecell and Dr. Mike Callahan at Imagineer. Again, my name is Keith Corneluk, and in the words of Dr. Z, we'll catch you next time, Warriors. Peace. Peace.